Well, hello everyone, I'm Dr. David Perlmutter and welcome back to The Empower Neurologist. Today we're going to talk about something called integration psychotherapy. And what is that? That is a relatively new approach to integrating the use of psychedelics uh, along with uh, psychotherapy to achieve an end, to achieve a goal. Whether it is in dealing with PTSD or depression, uh, other types of issues that are dealt with through psychotherapy, the idea that perhaps uh, this intervention can be enhanced with the co-utilization of psychedelics. Our guest is Dr. Ingmar Gorman. He is a psychologist and he specializes in this whole idea of helping people uh, who are using psychedelics and other psychoactive uh, compounds, helping them in uh, processing the uh, psychedelic experience uh, towards their benefit. He's also involved uh, in training healthcare providers uh, in terms of dealing with these individuals as well. He received his clinical training at the New School for Social Research at Mount Sinai uh, Beth Israel Hospital at uh, Columbia University in New York and also uh, trained at Bellevue Hospital. He completed his uh, NIH postdoctoral fellowship in, uh, at uh, NYU, New York University in 2017. He formerly was the director of the Psychedelic Education and Continuing Care Program at the uh, Center for Optimal Living and is now the co-founder of Fluence uh, and their website is F-L-U-E-N-C-E and then the number 8.com which is a, uh, a psychedelic education company that uh, trains mental health uh, providers in uh, psychedelic treatments. As it turns out, uh, that's not generally part of the curriculum these days, and that is really, I think, the focus of this Fluence program. He is also currently site co-principal investigator and therapist on uh, both phase two and phase three trials of uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which we will talk about today, uh, a study just published uh, using MDMA uh, to assist psychotherapy in the treatment of PTSD. So let's jump uh, right into our interview. I do want to tell you that uh, we are gratefully uh, joined by Dr. Austin Perlmutter in the interview today. So here we go. So, Dr. Gorman, so, welcome to our program. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. We're going to uh, jump right in and I'd like to uh, have you, if you could define, uh, you you kind of been the uh, the pioneer in this whole movement of integration psychotherapy. What exactly does that mean? Um, so maybe a really good place to begin is distinguishing integration therapy from psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Because um, if somebody has heard about this work, they've probably heard about psychedelic-assisted therapy, which is when a person is uh, given a psychedelic compound, uh, usually, uh, and uh, or an acute-acting pharmacological agent, and that drug is then used in conjunction with psychotherapy. So the idea is that the psychotherapy is enhanced by this compound. Um, so that is psychedelic or drug-assisted psychotherapy. Integration therapy, simply this idea that people are using these compounds currently, although not legally, in all sorts of settings. Uh, you can have people who are, most people will think about recreational 
party-like contexts. But there are also people who are traveling abroad to retreats, say in the Amazon or in Amsterdam, to engage in some sort of healing process or um, for spiritual purposes. Uh, or people in the United States are actually also engaging in underground psychotherapy, where they're having psychotherapy kind of in the gray area or really uh, illegally uh, with therapists and imbibing these compounds for uh, therapeutic value. And so psychedelic integration therapy takes into account that people are having these experiences, they're using these compounds, but um, there really isn't a mental health system set to support these individuals, whether they're coming back from these experiences in distress or if they're feeling like they're getting some benefits and gains. So, so integration is supporting people to uh, minimize the harms and maximize the potential benefits they may have. And it's this idea that change does not just occur due to the uh, administration of or the, or, or the taking of the drug alone, that there is some sort of interaction between a psychotherapeutic process and the drug. And integ the integration process is the, the days, weeks, sometimes months um, of therapeutic work that's done to help a person who's uh, used this kind of compound. So just for our viewers, to be clear, your clinic is not, is not involved in the actual utilization of the psychedelics as part of a therapeutic encounter, but rather these are people who engage the psychedelics in some other format, and then uh, afterwards you're working with them to contextualize it, to, to really work with the benefits of it. That's correct. So I have a, to make it a little bit more confusing, <laughs> I have a private practice and I would do that work that you just described, correct? I also own a company called Fluence where we train other clinicians to do exactly what you're saying. However, I'm also a PI on a study in which I actually do administer MDMA in the psychedelic assisted format where I'm there. But um, in terms of integration, yes, that's exactly what you described. Well, you know, this is a good time to talk about uh, your um, investigation work, and that is uh, the use of MDMA uh, adjunctively in uh, treating PTSD. And you just published a paper uh, in April of 2020. Uh, maybe you could tell us what provoked that and uh, why you felt it was necessary to do the research, and then, of course, what your findings were. Absolutely. Well, um, the, my motivations for this research uh, broadly. So MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD goes back um, over a decade. And uh, that is really based off of this observation that uh, MDMA was like some of the other compounds that can fall into similar categories, psychedelics, uh, have been overlooked. Right? Either there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that say that these compounds could be helpful for people in their mental health, uh, again, in controlled psychotherapeutic settings. And there's also... Uh, a lot of um, old research that was done. And back in 2005, when I looked at uh, the, the literature that was published previously and what people reported anecdotally, I thought, well, this this is almost like a, either everybody's suffering a mass delusion, <laughs> which is possible, or uh, this, uh, this something was really overlooked here. And we can use our modern scientific paradigms to evaluate whether there's any uh, truth to the possibility that these compounds could be helpful, specifically to the research paper. Uh, so uh, there is a currently a, a gathering a body of evidence that 
seems to indicate that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy could be helpful for PTSD. The, the effect sizes are actually quite strong, um, somewhere around 0.91, depending. Uh, and currently, we're in phase three trials, which I could speak to a little bit about that. But the motivation for the paper in particular that you asked me for, I was looking at a construct called post-traumatic growth. Uh, post-traumatic growth is essentially this idea that after a person goes through a traumatic experience, something that's been very difficult, uh, not only can there be negative effects, but potentially a person might um, experience some growth while going through that pain and suffering. And the kinds of growth that we might be talking about are um, a deeper connectedness to oneself, greater enhanced relationships, greater sense of meaning in a person's life, uh, more openness to uh, certain kinds of opportunities, a greater sense of spirituality. We can imagine how somebody goes through, say, a natural disaster and survives, and although there's a lot of pain and suffering, there's, uh, there can be a kind of emergence. And so what I was interested in was this question of whether MDMA-assisted therapy can, could potentially facilitate this kind of post-traumatic growth. The kind of headline, the, the take-home message of the paper is that, yes, uh, we, we've quite strongly found, again, an effect size of about 1.14, that uh, for people who received uh, the MDMA therapy compared to when they entered the study, there's a, there's a very, very large increase in their post-traumatic growth. Now, there's some more nuanced questions that I'd like to maybe speak about there, but that's, the head, that's sort of the take-home message. Sure, I'm all for the nuanced questions, but uh, okay. if you could, I'm just wondering about the post-traumatic growth. Um, is that a battery? How do you assess that? Yes, yes, uh, that's correct. It's a, a measure uh, that uh, consists of several dozen items. Uh, it has several subscales that look at these particular constructs of enhanced personal relationships, sense of meaning in a person's life, spirituality. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a measure that has been used quite a lot. It was developed in the mid-90s to assess this question of whether there even is such a thing as post-traumatic growth. And one maybe critique of it that I think is more current these days is that, you know, is, are we somehow glorifying people of suffering and just sort of say uh, there's a critique of, the, of this idea of resilience as well, which is closely related to post-traumatic growth. And I think it's a fair thing to question that, uh, you know, we shouldn't just be saying that, um, there are just positive benefits of, of trauma that we also have a kind of a even-handed approach to this. It, it seems as if these psychedelics, perhaps more uh, the ketamine versus the MDMA, kind of prime the brain via neuroplasticity to be ready to make change. And then that's really where you come in. Uh, you, you've got this almost, I don't want to call it a, a blank uh, uh, tableau rue kind of thing, but a, a, a starting over, a reset button that then allows you to take advantage of this enhanced neuroplasticity. And then uh, it, it seems to me that it's really fundamentally important that you step in at a time like that when a person is uh, available, but also perhaps vulnerable, coming back from their, their trip to where, whatever they, wherever they went to, to get uh, their exposure. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, you, I really appreciate um, you saying that because it demonstrates to me that you have a, a an understanding of of uh, what we're talking about here. And you said what you said is so rich that I would love to dive into <laughs> in, in so many things that you, you mentioned. Um, 
because we can talk about the pharmacological differences between and the psychological differences between ketamine and MDMA, um, and how they may be uniquely beneficial to different kinds of indications. Um, to your point, and I, to your point though, um, yes, that um, that taking advantage of that neuroplastic period, if that is, I think there are multiple mechanisms of action, but if we want to highlight that one, I think it is really important to take advantage of that that period through therapy, through behavior change through uh, reflecting on one's cognitive processes. Um, I'll just add that one of the, one of um, what, um, I don't know if it's a concern, but an observation, I guess, that I have about uh, ketamine for depression, which now we've seen developed into an intranasal spray. We see many clinics providing ketamine uh, infusions, is that there tends to be a ne neglecting of this uh, neuroplastic period. If, if that is the mechanism, then there should be collaboration between ketamine providers and psychotherapists so that a person doesn't just leave the ketamine infusion office, kind of going back to the same kinds of, of maybe ways of thinking or behaviors that they have. They may be experiencing temporary relief just straight due to the pharmacological effect of the drug, but we see in these ketamine treatments that the, the there tends to be, uh, when we're talking about depression, that usually the depression returns somewhere a day, maybe several weeks later. It's not a, um, a long-term change, usually. So, you know, there's psychedelics are getting popular uh, again. I'm old enough that I've, I've gone through the peak and the valley, now the peak again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, um, I was around in the late 60s, as it were. We'll leave it at that. Uh, but that said, uh, I think there's a very important message here, and that is it's more than just uh, scoring some psychedelics or going to a place and doing psychedelics. It's the important work that then has to happen afterward uh, to, to work with this new information, this new, uh, the changes that take place. And that's really, I think, central to what you're all about. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, yeah, there, there are many, like, you can look at a lot of different factors and mechanisms again. Um, the, I would say that the period after is very important. And there's also something about the, the actual moments when a person is under the influence of one of these compounds. So um, just the idea of safety and trust, right? That when a person uses, uh, say, a psychedelic on their own, um, they, um, they don't know what the source of the, and the, and the purity of the, the compound or the drug is. Um, they may be doing this, not necessarily doing it with trained professionals. Uh, and uh, I do believe that the capacity to let go, this is where we kind of get into the area of mindfulness or meditation, the capacity to just um, trust uh, the, the experience that's about to unfold is really, I think, key to um, outcome and improvement. And so that's, that's one variable that we can look at. Um, the work afterwards is also essential because there are so many variables that that kind of um, try, it, change is hard, right? And we have, there's different ways of talking about it. If we want to talk about defenses or if we want to talk about how a family system and interpersonal dynamics kind of constrain a person and doesn't necessarily motivate them to change. And so that integration period uh, is a can, it's, it's not just an internal process, but it's also a process that takes place within a family system, within a community, uh, where we're trying to make sure that not only is the person maybe 
taking advantage of this time, but also that the the people around the identified patient or participant can be ready to support this person's change. It's quite complex. So that's very important, though, that there is uh, there is support. Right. Very important. And in fact, in the research, one of the things that we do, this is now going towards the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy research, is to um, evaluate when we're doing an, an initial evaluation or assessment, um, not just the sort of symptoms of various psychological disorders, but whether this person has that kind of support. Um, I should mention here a key, I think, idea is that as a person, we can think about, one way to think about psychedelics and MDMA is that it uh, maybe they somehow loosens a person's rigidity. There's actually findings looking at the big five in terms of different personality domains and that both in MDMA and psilocybin, we've empirically demonstrated that these experiences facilitate a greater openness in, in the, the um, in, on the big five. Now, also, there's a greater vulnerability, right? With change, a person has to be flexible. And that means even in a kind of emotional vulnerability, sensitivity. And what I suspect is happening sometimes for people who are using psychedelics on their own, um, the kind of rough period that sometimes exists afterwards is because that they're more emotionally available, more sensitive. Sometimes people use phrases like their heart is more open. So that's something that we want to support through a therapeutic process. But if that process, is, if that support is not there, either therapeutically or uh, by the family or the support system, we can actually sometimes feel observe people who are feeling a little bit worse um, for a period of time. Uh, and some that change that they're hoping to have through their symptoms may not happen, uh, again, because uh, they're kind of opened up but don't have the support of the people around them. So... so Oh, go ahead, Austin. Sorry. So talking about this, um, I guess, willingness to change, availability for change, I, I keep thinking back to the early life programming that seems to be involved with the HPA axis and the limbic system that appears to predispose people when they have, let's say, early life trauma or adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. to later mental health issues. And I know that one of the conversations about the MDMA specifically therapy is that it enables people to tap into that fear center, the amygdala and the limbic system. And as you had mentioned, to be able to maybe uh, tolerate that and and maybe even rewrite some of the ways that people experience that. So I was wondering if you could speak to maybe the parallels between that early life plasticity that allows the, the HPA access to be kind of set up for a lifetime of success or maybe even the opposite, and then whether it, I guess, takes more effort to get into that as an adult, and in addition to the MDMA itself, what other modalities, maybe mindfulness and the like, might be helpful for people in trying to do that? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful question. Thank you. Um, So there's a paper, actually, that was published. Well, first, I I would say that everything that you're positing is, is correct, and that there is actually some really good initial uh, animal data that supports this hypothesis. And so what I, um, particularly this idea of, um, uh, so I'll just say that um, there's a study that was published, I think last year, that looked at uh, m- mice 
and uh, specifically adolescent mice that well, well, adolescent mice that were deprived from social contact and then became adults. And then when you introduce those deprived adult mice, um, you reintroduce them to uh, adolescent mice, they don't demonstrate the kind of social behavior that would be expected. Uh, and what this study did is gave adult mice MDMA, reintroduced them to uh, adolescent mice, and observed that those, uh, those social behaviors returned. Uh, so uh, that is some evidence that there may be uh, a kind of return to a, a previous way of re maybe repattering um, uh, or regaining behaviors that would otherwise have been have been lost. What's interesting is that they took it, took one step further, and they did the study again, but blocks blocked the oxytocin. And what they found was that that social behavior did not uh, was not evident. So that oxytocin plays an important role there in that change. The question is whether oxytocin is really important in um, um, bonding, or you know that it's important in bonding, but is, was that a key factor in the social behavior that was regained? Or may, may it play a more um, wider role in uh, neuroplasticity generally? I, I should emphasize here that one thing that MDMA does in addition to releasing serotonin, affecting serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, is that it also affects oxytocin. And that is uh, responsible for the sense of trust and safety that people feel in the, these studies. And you're absolutely correct that what we know from trauma is that, particularly interpersonal trauma, that uh, people with PTSD can have a, a really significant challenge in uh, trusting their therapists and engaging in the therapeutic process. And so, again, this acute administration of this drug uh, can allow a person to um, have the kind of therapeutic alliance, which we know, again, empirically is really important in uh, outcome. And what I think is surprising for me on a personal note is that, and sometimes people ask this question, well, is it just the drug, right? Like, is this an authentic experience that a person is having? And what I can tell that from the relationships that develop um, after the drug is gone, uh, I feel very confident that this, these are real experiences that our people have, are having. In fact, they're kind of corrective emotional experiences where they can experience themselves trusting again. And uh, what is available uh, to consumers? Let's say uh, individuals that are having issues with depression or PTSD in America. What, it, what can a consumer avail him or herself of uh, these days? Yeah, this is a number one question that we get. So um, currently, the only psychedelic-like compound that is available would be ketamine, which you had mentioned. And ketamine is a Schedule three drug, and it can be prescribed off-label. And so um, many of your viewers probably know the use of ketamine in ERs and its safety profile being quite safe. Um, and uh, several decades ago, it was observed that people who have acute intense suicidality or very, very intense depression, that ketamine can, for a certain number of them, actually create immediate relief of these symptoms. Uh, and so various clinics opened offering this uh, the service. Um, it's not really covered by insurance, which is an issue because it, the, the treatment can be quite costly. Uh, however, there are various clinics that are working on addressing this, and uh, also hopefully we get to a point where there will be insurance coverage. 
in terms of psilocybin or MDMA or these other compounds that I've mentioned, these are just currently under uh, FDA investigation, again, phase two and phase three trials. And so they are not available to consumers at this time uh, legally in this country. So where do you think it's going to go? Well, the data from the MDMA research looks very positive. Um, currently, we're halfway through the phase three trials. So we have about another year, potentially two, until the uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy data is in. It will be reviewed maybe another two or three years. And uh, I think there's a strong likelihood that it could become a prescribable medicine. Uh, psilocybin. Uh, Psilocybin has been, uh, there's good evidence for treatment of treatment resistant depression and depression, uh, really good evidence for alcohol use disorder, uh, potentially other uh, uh, substance use disorders, extremely strong evidence for uh, initial evidence for uh, smoking cessation, actually. And um, so I think that what we will be seeing is more, and we're seeing it currently, just an expansion of this research, looking at new indications see what can be helped, uh, what may be more resistant to, to change. And, uh, you know, we may be in, in five years talking about a very different landscape when it comes to the, the pharmacological agents we use to treat mental health. Let me shift uh, our discussion for just a moment because something that's really gained popularity, we're hearing a lot about it uh, in, in general and certainly from uh, friends and colleagues is ayahuasca. And maybe if you can just walk our viewers through what that is and then perhaps, you know, talk about the ideas that there may be something applicable here as well uh, in terms of utilizing ayahuasca or, or potential downsides. Yes, well, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, so ayahuasca is a brew. Uh, it is a combination of actually can often be many different kinds of plants, but the two primary ingredients are uh, Banisteriopsis copy, which is a, a vine that contains a five, uh, contains a, a, a AOI, uh, a, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, and another plant that contains uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, uh, which is actually fairly common in various plants. Uh, they have to be put together because if DMT is used orally, it is um, it can't be. The psychoactive effects won't take place due to uh, how it's uh, metabolized. So the, the MAOI, rather, <laughs> uh, blocks that. And so people pr experience pretty, can pr experience profound psychedelic uh, effects. And uh, because the way that this drug is, or this brew is made, and the way, the culture that comes with it, because it comes from uh, the Amazon, it's used in a group context. So you will very rarely see a single individual using ayahuasca on their own. Uh, often there's some sort of leader of this group, uh, say a shaman. Um, and there are also syncretic religions that have adopted the, the ayahuasca as their sacraments. Um, so there's all sorts of cultural aspects that come with this, which uh, I think from a non-scientific perspective actually creates a certain kind of safety and protection for people, potentially. Although they are not licensed mental health providers, there is a container for it. One of the limitations of this from a scientific perspective is that we're talking about a, a polypharma plant combination. And so I don't think that you'll be seeing the FDA anytime soon um, supporting research that looks at um, 
the use of this brew in uh, a lab uh, setting or, or a controlled setting. Uh, there is good evidence uh, around this uh, around ayahuasca from people who are traveling into the Amazon jungle or, or uh, people who are studying um, uh, ayahuasca in Brazil or Peru. But it's very different than going through a, an approval process to create a new medicine and treatment. Um, the risks there, uh, it's a very, it can be a very potent uh, drug or a very strong experience. And uh, sometimes people, this is anecdotal, but from people who reach out to my practice for help, I tend to see ayahuasca being a, one of the, um, the compounds that, um, that people struggle with uh, more afterwards. Um, it may be something about how intense the experience can be, uh, but uh, people can experience panic attacks afterwards or anxiety, um, all sorts of peculiar, um, sometimes somatic symptoms, which I think may be, again, a consequence of having a very overwhelming experience. And I, I want to say I don't want to contribute to any kind of panic around this. This isn't a minority of cases, but um, it, it does happen. And many people do talk about the benefits of ayahuasca, but um, I think we have to be really careful when we talk about this particular uh, psychedelic. It seems like you were, uh, though, um, that the uh, MDMA and, and ketamine approaches may be, from what you just described, probably safer. That said, are there any contraindications to even MDMA? Uh, absolutely. Um, well, there, there are biological or medical ones and um, you could say psychiatric ones. So you know that MDMA, A and MDMA stands for amphetamine. So it is a stimulant and it will increase heart rate, for example. So we want to be really careful about anybody who has uncontrolled hypertension. Uh, psychiatrically, uh, we, this is not well understood, uh, but we would think that something like a, uh, a bipolar disorder, uh, any kind of manic symptoms, somebody has pre-existing um, manic symptoms, that that would probably be a contraindication. Um, yet also not totally understood, but potentially people who have psychotic experiences, um, the MDMA may be somewhat destabilizing for them. Although there are talks of uh, a study potentially happening in the near future looking at MDMA as a treatment for uh, people who've had a history of, of uh, psychosis. That, that is a kind of more experimental. Um, yeah. So with, with ketamine, that tends to have an even safe, safer uh, profile than, than MDMA. However, when we're talking about PTSD strictly, going back to the indication, we do have some initial evidence looking at ketamine for post-traumatic stress disorder and the MDMA uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder. And they're not side-by-side uh, -side, um, comparisons, but if you look at the published literature, the MDMA data, to me, just objectively, uh, is stronger in terms of symptom reduction and most importantly, uh, long-term change. One thing that I would really like to add here that I haven't mentioned yet, which to me is the most convincing finding when it comes to the MDMA treatment for PTSD, is the um, is a, is a so-called one-year follow-up. But it was actually 45 months on average that participants were followed up in one of these trials, uh, and uh, there were 20 participants. And all but two participants um, uh, maintain their, the benefits of the MDMA treatment for PTSD. And so here we're talking, uh, we don't usually talk about this very much, but 
this could potentially be a cure. And there aren't really very many good pharmacological interventions for, for PTSD at this time. So I'd like to, uh, if we can, uh, talk about your training program. And I think that comes under the uh, category of, of the Fluence program, correct? That's correct. Yes. And that is to train therapists to basically do what you're doing. Tell us, uh, if you could, about that. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So one, the, the kind of seed for this program, and I, I'd like all of your viewers to kind of engage in this thought experiment with me. Um, if you have a train in mental health, thinking about how much of that time was devoted to uh, addictions or substance use generally. And what I know is that it's an elective. So minority of people are going to choose to specialize in that category um, of, of or specialty. Now, if we then think about all the people here who are listening who may have uh, had that kind of training, how much time was devoted to the topic of psychedelics? And I would say that it, you were lucky if, they had, if you had a single one-hour lecture on the topic. And this is, a, I think, a consequence of, um, well, the, the last 40 years where this class of substances has been generally neglected. And so what Fluence is doing is trying to correct this um, lack of education. Uh, we, want, uh, we want to train therapists for sure. We want to be able, for a person who has had a psychedelic experience or hasn't had one and is thinking about one, because they've read Michael Pollan's book or another popular book about psychedelics and they, they have questions about their mental health. Um, we want them to be able to, to go to their provider and say, hey, I've heard about this. I read about it in the news. I don't really know much about psychedelics, but I wonder if, I wonder if this could be something that's for me or maybe if, are there risks? Should I be worried about these conflicts? And, I, and we want uh, uh, mental health providers and uh, people in uh, medicine generally to be able to have some sort of adequate response to that question. That would be sort of the, the maybe the entry to this at, at the further end um, for people to competently be able to work with people who are using psychedelics uh, or potentially become psychedelic therapists themselves one day. Because amongst mental health professionals, there's actually a real demand for training in psychedelic assisted therapy proper. Uh, yet, um, the, uh, we're not quite there yet in terms of being able to disseminate the actual treatment. So we're at a very, very interesting time point right now where there, there are many people in the uh, public who are interested in these treatments. There are many professionals who are interested in learning how to provide the treatments, yet uh, the door hasn't quite opened yet. Uh, and so we're, uh, Fluence is essentially trying to help a, a potential bottleneck that might occur in the future and make sure that providers are ready if and when this uh, these treatments become more available, and we One do that through on. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. You can continue. This was somewhat unrelated. I was just going to say that we do this online and in person. So uh, there are very many there are many different avenues for this. And I also just want to maybe as a point of celebration, just last week uh, we received a CME uh, sponsorship, so we can now offer CME. Uh, credits for people who take our classes. Fantastic. One of the, the points that I wanted to bring up um, actually relates to a topic my father and I have been looking into for a while, which is empathy and how empathy may have changed in the modern world as a result of multiple factors. But 
looking at where we're at right now and the high degree of polarization and how that might associate with mental health, um, obviously one of the, the key aspects of MDMA is that it has this empathogen role, which has been um, popularized in, in articles. And I wonder with your experience working with this chemical, do you have some insights into the role of empathy in mental health, whether that's relating to other people or maybe even to an earlier version of ourselves and oh, yeah. how we might be able to expand that as general advice for people trying to find balance right now? Thank you. Um, you, you. I think you hit the nail on the head when it came to uh, when you said an earlier version of ourselves. So I, I think that we can often, people can generally have empathy for others, but have a harder time developing empathy or self-compassion for themselves. And I would say that what anecdotally what I've observed with participants using MDMA is that they they just develop a capacity and an ability to reflect on past events that have happened to them and uh, engage in some sort of self-forgiveness, which I think is a product of that capacity to empathize with oneself. Um, sometimes PTSD is connected to this idea of a moral wound, this idea that a person, this, this can be tremendous, tremendous guilt that accompanies PTSD. And that capacity for self-empathy like is, is part of that, that healing process. Uh, in term, terms of the world at large, um, maybe a few anecdotes. One is, uh, I, from my reading, when the history of MDMA is quite fascinating, but at one point it went from being used by therapists pri prior to it being scheduled. So it was not illegal. Therapists were using it for treating trauma and, and couples therapy. But when it first entered the sort of the club scene, it was um, called empathy. It was referred to as empathy. The joke is that empathy didn't sell so well. And so they changed it to ecstasy, become a lot more uh, desirable. Maybe it's better marketing. Um, the other thing that I would say in terms of uh, the more, the broader social context or situation is that um, I'm, there hasn't been a lot of research on this topic, but with you could say that MDMA facilitates a kind of openness and trust that improves in-group cohesion. But I'm also mindful of the fact that with in-group cohesion also can uh, there can be an increase in out-group um, exclusion. And I'm very curious to see what kind of interaction might there be more broadly when it comes to, to MDMA. There have been talks about using MDMA for, to maybe lighten this up a little bit, there have been talks about doing studies looking at using MDMA for conflict resolution. Could you have two parties that are uh, in intense disagreements um, come together and have MDMA be used as a tool for res conflict resolution? Um, there was one other thing that I wanted to mention about empathy. Ah, right. Uh, finally, I think that there is tremendous overlap between uh, meditation, mindfulness, contemplative practices, and psychedelic treatments generally. The capacity to be present in the present moment, to uh, not be too worried about the past or the future or getting to some, some goal is sort of counterintuitively 
a very, very useful skill when it comes to, for, for the, the therapists and for the, the, the patients when it comes to doing this work. Um, for the patients or participants, we talk about healing through an, an intuition. It, it's, uh, again, um, we're empowering our patients to find their own uh, way forward. And as therapists, we are almost like midwives. We're not there with particular solutions or we're not telling our um, participants or patients that they need to be thinking about a certain thing. We're there to sort of just kind of again be part of this supportive environment. The reason why uh, mindfulness and contemplative practices and empathy would be important for therapists is that currently, both with MDMA and psilocybin, these sessions last six to eight hours and it's not six and eight hours of talking so to be able to be present to sit to observe one's counter-transference the reactions that are coming up to the person that you're working with and to not feel like you necessarily have to always be intervening or using language to get a person somewhere else to just be able to again be with the present moment um, i think there are actually other kinds of key factors that will be useful in this treatment moving forward there are so many important points in what you were just describing, and I, I want to relate one idea as it relates to the uh, in-group, out-group bias, looking at studies on oxytocin, which, as we mentioned, may be one of the mechanisms through which MDMA has a, a neuroactive effect, and seeing that while people like to think as oxytocin is going to increase their connection to other people, that it can, in fact, increase out-group bias, at least in some of the studies with the nasal oxytocin. So when people are playing a game and they are told that they can cooperate with strangers or not, it can actually decrease cooperation with strangers and increases cooperation with people they already know. So a little interesting idea there. But um, I'd really like to, to talk a little bit more about what you had just described, which is that you're doing more than just having this cognitive discussion of what's going on in the brain and trying to reprogram somebody. And I know that for me, in my medical training through internal medicine, we do a whole lot of understanding the mechanisms of what is going on and trying to get a specific drug that is going to target a specific mechanism that's going to fix somebody, whether that's an ACE2 receptor for blood pressure or a beta blocker for heart rate. And, you know, we don't have to tell the patient, here's how this beta blocker is going to work, but you really need to feel it too. You really need to think about those receptors mm. changing in your heart. But what you're describing is something different. You're saying that here you are as a person with a lot of medical training who is sitting with a person and allowing them to be open to the feeling piece of the, the healing process, that that's actually essential to the healing. And so that's actually, for me at least, relatively um, distant from the, the type of training that seems to go into traditional medicine. So I would love to hear any more as far as, as how you value that and maybe a message for people who don't usually think about the value of the felt experience in the healing process. Thank you. Yes. Um, one point of just clarification that I, I'm a clinical psychologist. I, I don't have medical training, um, although uh, I, I, I feel like psychology is as much a medical field as anything oh. could be. If you think about what you're trying to do with healing people, what is what is the difference? One person uses more drugs, surgeries. One person uses more, I shouldn't say psychosurgery because that is very different. 
but yeah. you're using psychological, you know, conversations and interventions in order to help somebody to get to better health. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, and your point is uh, also very well taken. Um, one, not not to not to diminish the the, the MD physician field. Uh, this is actually you know true of psychologists as well. Some of the observations that the training. Um, some of the training team around the MDMA system therapy has had is that there's actually a great deal of unlearning for many of uh, the professionals that are trained in the MDMA therapy. And um, whatever tool you're using uh, as, a, as a professional, um, I think this work does require letting go a little bit of, of those things and taking a little bit of a, of a backseat. Um, to your point about being engaged with the the, and feeling the process. Well, to me, it's it's not so surprising because it's um, it's we talk about uh, how well it's unusual, right? Like with, to just take your point even one step further, an antidepressant, Prozac doesn't. You don't have to be mentally engaged with it in order for it to have an effect. However, with psychotherapy, you do. Right? If a person does not uh, feel engaged with the therapist, if they don't really um, feel connected to the kind of therapeutic process or the, the techniques that are being used, they're not going to get better. And so you can think about this as kind of harnessing both. Right, We are making a, a, a biological, neurological impact acutely with this drug. Psychotherapy, of course, also has a biological effect. But we're, we are... Um, we are uh, enhancing that uh, therapeutic effect through through this uh, pharmacological intervention. And you know, just to drive your point home around mechanism, I mean, it's a it's a really important question. Uh, bio, again, from a more biological perspective, what areas of the brain are being affected? And we've, we've observed decreases in activity in amygdala after uh, MDMA, uh, um, which we know is uh, hyperactive or overly active in PTSD. Um, there there's a hypothesis around um, memory reconsolidation and what is the role of the hippocampus and amygdala when it comes to MDMA, but also things that are maybe less talked about in terms of within the MDMA circles or MDMA treatment itself is the dopaminergic effect and the activity in the prefrontal cortex, perhaps how the increased capacity to actually focus and stick with something, um, or you know, it's a stimulant to so have the greater capacity to 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 speak when a person has been shut down for so long after uh, PTSD. These are all very important biological mechanisms. I tend to focus a lot more on the psychological ones, um, like the memory reconsolidation hypothesis, or is there some level of exposure uh, and potentially habituation that might be happening? Um, or is this something entirely different, or something we don't talk so much about, which is a kind of personal, maybe even somewhat kind of spiritual meaning-making process where Psychedelic compounds allow a person to re-relate to themselves, change the narrative about themselves in a kind of very convincing, uh, helpful way, and uh, move forward in their life in a uh, more fully. Well, it's incredibly interesting to note the correlation between the mystical experience and the efficacy of some of these drugs, and it just it makes me think about what is going on as far as the neurochemical changes that maybe 
in, either induce people to have the mystical experience in the first place, or maybe it is the psychological idea of the mystical experience that then drives the neuroplasticity. I'm not sure, but there's certainly so much there to think about as far as it's not just about the chemicals, it's about the felt experience that can be the predictor of whether or not somebody has an effect. Yes, uh, so there's much to say here. One is that, um, so you're alluding to the research that was done with psilocybin that right. found uh, generally pretty strong correlations about 0.7 between the mystical experience and reductions in, in symptoms of depression and anxiety. And so, um, one, just one of a, a very seminal article spoke about how we can reliably induce a mystical experience in the lab. And in fact, that, that the likelihood of inducing that mystical experience is dose-dependent. So there's a pretty clear you know, biological mechanism here. Um, an important note that with psilocybin, after they went over a particular dose, they found that there wasn't a, necessarily an increase in mystical experience, but the increase in rates of anxiety or an anxious experience increased. So there seems to, to be a good kind of maximal dose that you want to give if you want to induce a mystical experience. Now, <laughs> um, the question is, is it really, maybe amongst the um, lay community or even amongst professionals, there can be an, sometimes an over-evaluation, I feel, of this mystical experience. And you can, you know, this message gets communicated to the public, and then there's this, uh, this real sticking of the mystical experience in order to get better. And if you think about a correlation of 0.7, you know, that means that about what, 51% of the variance isn't necessarily explained. Um, or is there another kind of mediating relationship? There's an uh, uh, article that was published by Alan Davis just last year that uh, it wasn't, it was a, it, it had its methodological problems, but what he found was that psychological flexibility was a key mediator between the mystical experience and symptom change. So it may not be the mystical experience being uh, sufficient, but a capacity to um, be psychologically flexible, uh, to, to kind of, well, to integrate or take away from that experience and turn it into something that is um, more beneficial. Another note, just to say that with MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, um, there is a correlation between the mystical experience and symptom reduction. It's, it's quite weak. And so um, unlike what we call the classic psychedelics or classic hallucinogens, of which psilocybin is one, uh, MDMA, as you had mentioned, uh, a pathogen or intactogen, does not see, it does not seem to have, um, the mystical experience doesn't seem to have the same um, kind of role in symptom change as it does with the classic psychedelics. Interesting. Well, listen, we uh, sure appreciate uh, your taking the time to uh, and spend time with us today and uh, amazing information. We know that, um, you know, this is becoming very popular. I mean, for a number of reasons. Michael Pollan's book, uh, certainly one of the reasons. And, uh, you know, for you to put this into context and to really help us, I think, segregate the recreational aspects versus the therapeutic aspects, I think is really the home run that, uh, that people are really looking for. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I just want to say that I really appreciate uh, being invited to speak here at uh, your podcast. This is, uh, I've spoken at other podcasts before, but this is definitely one of the more uh, higher profile ones that I feel honored to be invited. Um, I love speaking about this topic. And if you'd uh, if you ever want to speak to me again, I'd be very happy to to speak or recommend somebody else if you'd like to speak to them. Oh, absolutely count on it. Austin, good to see you.
Thank you as well. Thank you so much. This has been a, a fascinating interview. And, you know, as my dad had mentioned, this is something that the, the public is increasingly concerned about in a, a good and bad way. Um, I know that in my recent home state where I'm going back to Oregon, there's actually a psilocybin initiative on the ballot. And so I see that the movement is towards asking how can we incorporate these types of things into um, medical care as it relates to these conditions that are so prevalent and damaging right now, anxiety and depression. And I just think about the fact that uh, a recent survey showed that in this time of COVID, about one third of Americans report experiencing symptoms of anxiety and depression. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to say that maybe there is a serotonin imbalance that can be fixed by an SSRI in some people, but it's obviously not enough. And we know that so many people with these drugs, even with the right therapies, are not getting uh, complete remission. So being open to other solutions is, I think, essential and really appreciate what you're doing in shedding light on one of those possibilities. Thank you. I really appreciate um, saying that. And maybe it would be important for me to perhaps make a plug. And that's for uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is a nonprofit that is solely responsible for funding uh, MDMA research for PTSD, all donation based. And they've been at this work for over 30 years. And I wouldn't be here today. I, I think that the entire field of psychedelic medicine and research that's currently going wouldn't be here without that organization. And so I just would appreciate if your viewers would uh, check it out if they're interested. Well, with any luck at all, when you just said that, uh, there'll be a graphic that appears underneath underneath your picture. So we'll make it happen. Okay, Great, everybody, thank thanks really for joining, it. and I will talk soon. Bye for now. Well, we learned a lot from Dr. Gorman uh, today. This really does further open the door uh, to our understanding of the utility of the utilization of uh, adding in psychedelics in selected individuals uh, to assist in the psychotherapeutic approach to dealing with their problems. Uh, the study that he just published uh, in April of 2020 really did uh, show some pretty dramatic improvements on the scales that we talked about uh, in PTSD patients uh, treated uh, with uh, MDMA. So some uh, very exciting work that's being done and again, um, we are going to include some of the important websites that he talked about. And we're grateful to Dr. Gorman and also for Dr. Austin Perlmutter uh, joining us today uh, on the program. Be back soon. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.